Matt Moran. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty weighty, serious text of scripture today. Let me start with a story that should help us um, frame it a little bit. A couple of years ago, one of my younger brothers did something that uh, caused both my parents just to fall on their knees in prayer and also fall back on the knowledge that teenage boys don't really have fully developed brains. Um, that's, a, that's actually a scientific fact. I'm not sure how com comforting that actually is to parents. But he was out with his friends, and it was night, and he realized that uh, he'd left something back in school. But of course it was night, and the building was locked. But he thought, no problem. I can go back and get it. Uh, I know one of those windows are cracked. And I'll just open that up, jump in there, grab my stuff, and we can, we can get going. So, when the alarm went off, as it inevitably did, and the police came and my parents were summoned, you know that the words that my parents said to him, and the cops said to him, and the principal said to him, they all said the same thing, right? What were you thinking? Of course there's an alarm on the building. What were you thinking? What were you possibly thinking? How did you think that was going to go well? So he got, to, he got to try and answer that to all those people, and gets to still answer that question to my little sister who likes to bring this story up every week or so. <laughs> what were you thinking? So keep that kind of picture in mind as we get into this story at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. We've been in Acts since September, and we've called this sermon series The Relentless Advance of the Gospel. And we've seen the Gospel advance in power through the first four chapters of this book. A couple weeks ago when Matt was preaching, we saw this amazing picture of unity in the book of Acts. Luke writes that the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And we were describing how these, how this church was sharing all of their possessions, how they were giving incredibly generously, how there was in fact not one single needy person among them. And we're, we were also seeing where this experience of grace and generosity is fueling a witness to Jesus' resurrection power. So we see in Luke's account, in chapter 4, there's a great experience of grace that flows into amazing generosity, and those things coupled together, the grace and the generosity, are resulting in this amazing witness for the gospel. It's incredible. And that gospel culture of the early church is what we've been talking about for these first four chapters. Luke even says there is one man named Barnabas who had a piece of property, and he went and he sold it, and he distributed the entire proceeds of the price of his property to the apostles. That's how generous this church is. There's the spontaneous selling of stuff and giving to the church just to meet needs. That's the type of stuff that's happening. But just after Barnabas does this amazing thing, the story kind of transitions. So lest we think that this early church is without any sin or without any chaos, Luke moves into chapter 5 with this one simple word. But, if we were watching a movie, this is kind of like where you would be happily munching your popcorn, and then all of a sudden the creepy music starts, and you have this sense that, like, oh, someone, something terrible is about to happen. Someone's about to get kidnapped. That's where we are in the story today. Something ominous is about to happen, and signaled by that word. But, not everyone was like Barnabas. Let's read this. But a man named Ananias, this is the 
start of chapter 5 in Acts. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. <coughs> and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Okay, this is God's word. Let's pray together, and we'll dig in. God, we ask um, as you, as we open up this word, that you would make it clear by the power of your Spirit, that you would cause us to hear and understand these things. Okay, just so we're all clear what we're talking about here. Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing that Barnabas did. They took a piece of property, and they sold it, and they gave the money to the church. The only thing that was different about what they did is they decided together that they would keep part of the money themselves, but lead the church to believe that they had given the entire portion. When Peter hears their version of the story, he speaks to them very prophetically, very intensely. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Spirit? And when Ananias hears Peter, he doesn't fight back, he doesn't rationalize, he doesn't make excuses. Instead, as though he's had a heart attack, he just falls down on the spot. Peter tells the young men that they need to take care of this. So a team of young men come, and they wrap him up, and they take him, and they put him in the ground. If we were in the first century, Sam Newcomer would be in charge of this team. That would be his, that would be like his mentored ministry, unplanned barriers. <laughs> Three hours later, Sapphira comes. She hasn't heard what's happened. And Peter gives her a chance to explain herself. He says, tell me, where's this money coming from? She repeats the same exact story. Same result. Peter says, how is it possible that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Sapphira falls down. And the young men come back inside and they take her out. So we read that story and say, 
What are we supposed to do with that? What's that sort of story supposed to mean? Let's keep in mind, this is actually a very generous act. Isn't that one of the things that kind of gives us pause? What's more, I would venture to say, just for the plausibility of the story, that Ananias and Sapphira didn't even keep very much of the money. Otherwise, the story wouldn't really make sense. Because people would have had a general grasp of the value of property. What they kept back was likely a small percentage. For example, if one of you sold your house and with great fanfare came and brought a $100,000 check to the church and said, I am giving the entire proceeds of the sale of my house to the church. I think my inclination would be to say something like, okay, great. I don't think you're being entirely truthful because I don't know any homes around here that cost $100,000, but I'm glad you're being so generous. So let's walk down to the bank together and cash this. And then I'll know in the back of my head that we can talk in the coming years about honesty and exaggeration. But thank you. That was great. That's not what happened here, okay? That's not what's happening at all. What I'm saying is Ananias and Sapphira gave most of it away. They did a really good thing. And for this, they were struck dead. So we struggle with this, right? Let's not miss the major obvious question where we say, wait, you're telling me they were struck dead? It's a miracle of death? Like, we look at this and say, aren't we all sinners? I've heard of worse deeds than this. Wasn't this even sort of a good deed? Even if their motives were a little bit mixed? Isn't this punishment a little bit intense? So to answer that, we're going to need to understand what the sin is and what it's not. So first, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't give all the money away. In fact, they did not have to give away a cent. They didn't have to sell the land. Yes, they were living in the midst of a very generous culture, and that probably inspired them to join in. But look at Peter's words. While it remained unsold, was it not your own? In other words, you did not have to do this. This guy Barnabas did not give his house because he had to or because we told him to. He gave it away because he experienced the grace of the gospel. You only give because your heart's been changed. And then Peter continues, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, if you wanted to sell the land and give half of it to the church and then buy a boat, more power to you. You can do that. It was a generous church, but there was no compulsion to give property away. So what was the sin that received such a strong judgment? Well, were they lying? Yes, they were lying. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together. They saw how great it would be to look good in front of the church. And I think we get this, right, on some level. A lot of times when we do something good, we want the recognition that comes from that. We want at least a little bit of the credit. We want to thank you in return. If I'm going to do something good, I want it to be noticed. 
I remember the first time I ever gave money to someone. I had a friend, this was like high school, college. I had a friend that was taking a mission script, and I wanted, he was trying to raise support, and I was trying to support him. So I wrote him a check. It was a small check, but I had a very small checking account. And I thought he would be blown away by my generosity, because I was blown away by my generosity. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't hear anything from him. So finally, because I wasn't getting like any type of acknowledgement, I had to ask him. I had to ask him, hey, did you get that money that I gave you? And he said, yeah, thanks. And I said, oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to make sure you got it. <laughs> and that was my first experience with like the back end of disillusioning generosity. I realized that what I really wanted was the approval of my friend. And the money that I gave him was kind of the price tag that I put on his approval. When my, his reaction underwhelmed me, that's kind of when I saw my own heart. So we get it that it's possible to give with the wrong motives. And it's also possible, too, that this church made too much of what Barnabas did. We do have this tendency in church or in religious culture to exalt the giver rather than exalting the spirit. And into this culture, Satan tries to get a foothold. Ananias and Sapphira get the idea that they're going to do something similar to what Barnabas did. They did what was essentially a good thing, but their motives were self-glory, self-exaltation. The giving was voluntary, but the deceit was intentional. They were proud, they loved money, and they thought that they could do something that looked good and hold on to their own pride and desire for glory. They were hypocrites. They still thought that participation in the life of the church was really about them. They had proximity to the truth. They had seen a lot of things. We don't know exactly when Ananias and Sapphira connected with the life of the church, but this is a very short time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They had seen a lot of things happen, but they had never had real heart change, real faith, real repentance. Okay, so now you should probably be saying that their pride was a problem, that they wanted glory for their name instead of for God. But let's go even a little bit deeper, okay, to understand why it was that their sin received such harsh judgment. We need to look at Peter's words to understand this. He describes Ananias' deceit as lying to the Spirit. Why has sin filled your heart to lie to the Spirit? Both lies he describes as a lie to the Spirit. After Ananias is, is struck down, and after Sapphira unwittingly repeats the same story, Peter asks Sapphira, it's almost like incredulously, how is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, what did you think was going to happen? How did this seem like a good idea? You must not understand what you're dealing with. Because see, by Peter's understanding, when you oppose the Holy Spirit, it's like running into a brick wall or getting in the way of an unstoppable force. I'm not sure we necessarily know what it means when we think. What does that mean to oppose the Spirit? We have to look at it from the way that Peter was looking at it. Okay? Let's think about Peter. 
his perspective. He's the disciple that spent three years with Jesus. He's the disciple who, after three years, denied Jesus in his hour of greatest need. He's the disciple who absolutely disqualified himself and said in Jesus' captivity that he never knew him. But he is also the disciple who has been restored by Jesus. He has received the spirit that Jesus promised. When Jesus promised the spirit to his disciples, he said, the spirit is going to guide you into all truth, and the spirit will glorify me. Peter received that promise. And ever since that promise happened, this is what's been happening. Everything has changed. Peter's been empowered to preach the word of God. The spirit of God has been poured out at Pentecost. A lame man was healed. The church was started. Peter was dragged, <coughs> excuse me, dragged into prison. But he came out of there preaching the gospel boldly. Thousands of people have responded in faith and repentance. And when they were opposed from the outside, the Spirit gave Peter and John incredible power to declare the gospel boldly, way beyond their capacity. They spoke clearly and boldly, and the Spirit has filled this church to speak the gospel with clarity and with boldness. And the Spirit is the one making this church unified and generous. All this has happened. He's seen his whole life transformed, and he's seen the people around him transformed. He's seen the Spirit overcome amazing pressure from the outside, and now he's seen an enemy from the inside coming that Satan is filled. And Peter's already first-hand experienced Satan being overrun by the power of the Spirit, and he's looking at Ananias and Sapphira and saying, What are you thinking? What are you possibly thinking? How is that possible that you are trying to get away, get in front of what the Spirit is doing? You saw all this happen. You were part of it. You lived among us. You were part of what the Spirit has been doing in the life of this church. And yet you've conspired together to try and stop it. And he looks at them and says, This is going to be the cause of your destruction. See, we need to understand that we can never oppose God. We can never be living lives that are in opposition with God. Whether that opposition is open, or whether that opposition is secret, God is absolutely, 100% blindingly holy. He does not tolerate sin on any level. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't play along with it. And the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit of God. And the church is where the Spirit of God dwells. So we need to see the grievous nature of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. But we also need to see what this text is telling us about the nature of the church. The church is a distinct set apart of people. God's word to his covenant people has always been, Be holy, for I am holy. The church is where we should be most excited about pursuing holiness and unity because the church represents God in the world and God is holy. The church is always to be marked by 
holiness, unity, and peace. That's life together under the Spirit of God. So we should long for that and pray for that. When we sin, we know from experience, we don't all die instantly like Ananias and Sapphira. But this text is a picture of how God feels about sin. And we shouldn't miss that. When people look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, some people like to get technical, start thinking about what exactly killed them. What was the medical cause? Was it a heart attack? Did, did they experience so much shock that um, something in their body started to shut down? What triggered this, this type of shock? Ultimately, what killed them was that their sinfulness collided with the holiness of God. And this story is a picture of how God feels about sin. And it is a picture of what will happen to all unrepentant sinners, whether instantly or eventually. So when we look at this story, how do we actually bring it home? How, what is that supposed to mean to us? So first we have to not miss, and I know I'm laboring this, but it's a, it's a, it's a very important part of this text. We have to not miss that sin is serious. It's deadly and offensive to God. Now, this can get difficult because our Bible tells us that sin will always be part of our experience here on this earth. <coughs> that even the good things that we do are marred to some extent by our sin. However, the Bible does not tell us that the Bible doesn't lead us to be pessimistic about earthly perfection so, so that we can become lackadaisical or comfortable in our sin. So, we confess our sin in an ongoing way, and we fall in the grace of God. We rejoice in the substitutionary death of Christ that covers our sin, and we look forward to the day when sin is entirely erased. But we can never let the reality that sin touches some of even the best things that we do make us feel lackadaisical or comfortable in our sin. God is holy. His patience is to lead us to repentance. That's the purpose of his patience. If we don't die like Ananias and Sapphira, his patience is to lead us to repentance. What I would say is if you are keeping unconfessed sin in your heart, you need to confess that. You need to get that out. You need to let the story urge you to repentance. Confess that sin to God and to your brother or sister. It should always be a fearful thing for us to treat God with contempt or to be fakes about our religion. Don't hide, but confess your sin to God. He sees everything. Ananias and Sapphira were people that were in and around the covenant people of God. But proximity didn't help them. Proximity is not enough. Fire were hypocrites, but Christians 
are not hypocrites. Christians, those who have truly believed, are sinners who have repented and believed in Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So there's, this, there's a huge difference right here. Hypocrites are people who have who pretend to be something that they're not and have no intention of becoming that something. Do you get, get the distinction that I'm making? Christians are weak and flawed, but they are repentant sinners who fall in the grace of God. If you are in sin, you need to be the one who repents and falls in the grace of Jesus Christ and turns from your sin. So we need to see that sin is serious. And secondly, we should also, on the flip side of that, be people who love transparency and honesty. For those of us who are turning from our sins, the Spirit is a great comfort because it's the work of the Spirit that actually changes us from the inside out and gives us a heart of obedience and authenticity and faith. When I think about Peter, by any measure, Peter's sins are much worse than Ananias and Sapphira. They had fake generosity. How do you think Peter felt as he watched people in his church fall down in their sin and be carried out. I don't think there was any pleasure there. I don't think there was any triumphalism. I think it was absolutely sobering. But I do think when Peter reflected back on what God has saved him from and the way that God changed his heart, there was a marvel at the grace of God who saved a sinner who had turned completely away from Jesus it caused him to marvel. A hideous sinner like Peter restored and made new. We see at the end of the story what happens when we see that sin is serious and yet in light of that we live together in holiness and unity and honesty. At the end of the story, verse 11, the concluding verse of the story says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear came upon the whole church. A good way of understanding that great fear would be to think of it as like a heightened sense of spiritual reality. So there's more going on here than just fear when we think about fear of, you know, a spider or a burglar or something like that. The nature of this fear is a newer and deeper and clearer understanding that God is real and sin is real, that both these things are not just sort of illusionary, but that both are entirely real. They walked in the light of that reality. Later on in the book of Acts, in the verse that we read on board, Luke describes the church and he says, the church was walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Spirit. Both those things held together. The fear of God helps us realize that God is absolutely real, but the comfort of the Spirit reminds us that Jesus has interceded for us and that he's made a way for us to come to the Father. Both those things together were characterizing the church. Peter said it multiplied. There's peace and there's growth walking in the fear of God. What we want to be together is a church walking in the fear of God, fighting our sin, repenting from our sin, living lives in honesty, in unity with each other. And in the fear of God, and in the comfort of the Spirit, experience that peace and growth together. When we look at this story, we're sobered by sin. But we see grace. We see grace poured out on the life of Peter. We see 
a reality check for the rest of the church, and they walk in the fear of God, knowing that there can be no there can be no fakery or trickery or just pie in the sky religious acts happening in the life of the church. But this is a church that lives in honesty, transparency with each other, and in that peace and growth happens. The church multiplies. Let's be that church that fights sin, repents from sin, and walks in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this story. I pray that it would both sober us, cause us to turn to you in repentance and faith, and to rejoice in what you have saved each one of us from. I pray that that reality would, um, would just become incredibly clear to each one of us here. In Jesus' name.